Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana, and I am joined by my regular co-host for the 20th Century Movie Club, Michael Scott. How are you, sir? I am well, Dana. Thank you. How are you today? Uh, I'm doing good. It's uh, It's been a little while since we've had an opportunity to record one of these episodes, so I'm excited to jump back in. Yeah, got to shake a, shake a few cobwebs off here, see if I can remember how to do this thing. Yeah, me too. I was thinking the exact same thing. Uh, just before we get started, I, of course, want to send a big thank you out to our recent uh, guests that have joined us on the show, Carmelita, Jay, uh, Dylan. You guys are great. We appreciate you guys taking the time to, to do the episodes with us, and they were really well received. So it was good to have them on. Would you agree? Absolutely. It's always a joy to talk to, talk to them. It's October now. And what it sure is. Yeah, yeah. And what does October mean for us on the Dana Buckler show? It means we are going to be talking about horror movies. So that's the theme for this episode. We really didn't have any other criteria other than the standard rules that, you know, it has to be a movie that's been released before the year 2000. So, Mike, I'm anxious to see what your first pick is. So the floor is yours. I was so excited when we talked about that we should do horror movies because I was already kind of planning on doing that anyway. Uh, because uh, for those who don't know, every October I try and watch at least 31 horror movies in the 31 days of October. I usually end up doing way more than that, but that's always my goal every October. I've said on the show before, I love Halloween. I love horror movies. So I'm super stoked. I did try to go this time with you know, sometimes on this show, I have a tendency to kind of go with some some kind of off the wall, obscure recommendations. This time, I kind of wanted to just go with some some good basic ones that I think maybe people wouldn't have seen, but that are ones that I think are almost kind of foundational, important horror movies. Uh, so my very first recommendation, we are actually going to go all the way back to 1935 for this one, because uh, I think that if we're talking horror there's no point in even talking modern horror without at least acknowledging the universal horror movies of the 30s and 40s. The universal monster movies are, you know, exceptionally well done by and large. As they sequelized them, they got worse. But if you're talking the basic, the mainline ones, they are all exceptionally well done. And, and my personal pick for the best one out of the bunch is the 1935 James Whale-directed film Bride of Frankenstein. Direct sequel to Whale's uh, original 1931 hit Frankenstein starring Boris, Boris Karloff as the uh, as the monster. And uh, and it is, you know, when we think of sort of cultural impressions of what Frankenstein looks like, it is the Frankenstein that Karloff and Whale created. Dana, have you ever seen Bride of Frankenstein? You know, I haven't, but it's one that, of course, you know, if you're even remotely interested in film and film history, you know, you you know and you recognize, you know, I, I, I don't even know, like, I've seen little scenes from the movie. I think I've seen scenes from the movie. I'm not sure if it's from the original or subsequent sequels, but of course, I'm f immensely familiar with uh, Frankenstein's monster and the Bride of Frankenstein with the big hair and everything. So, I haven't seen it, but of course, familiar with it. Have you seen Young Frankenstein? Yes, I have. <laughs> so then you've basically yes. seen this movie because <laughs> yes. uh, there there are some scenes from Frankenstein, but Young Frankenstein really does take a bulk of its uh, sort of parodies from this. You know, for instance, there's a scene in this one where Frankenstein meets a blind hermit that Mel Brooks replicates in Young Frankenstein that is hilarious. The two play perfectly together. What I love about Bride of Frankenstein is this is James Whale at his mind. 
mightiest. Uh, for those who don't know, Whale was a, a very, very big director in the 30s and 40s, but he was also openly gay in a time when, I mean, it's not like, you know, that's great for your career now in Hollywood, but it was even worse back then. And so there is a kind of a belief that his career ended up sort of ending because he was he was unashamed of his sexuality. Uh, luckily, he kind of had been very intelligent about his investments. So even though his career ended, he managed to live out his life in, in comfort. Uh, but in 1935, this was Whale at the height of his powers. And Whale had such a modern eye uh, and, and such a modern sensibility. You know, when we think of movies from 1935, we tend to think of very stodgy. And a lot of them are kind of stage bound. You know, they're almost like plays that were just filmed. And Whale's not like that. He, he uses uh, unique angles, unique framing, uh, very, very... Uh, high contrast gothic lighting to sort of create a very moody piece. Um, th this is really, you know, the story is what it is. Everybody knows it. Like you said, Dana, even if you haven't seen it, the monster wants a mate. Frankenstein and his mentor, Dr. Pretorius, try to create uh, a bride for him and things go to hell. It's in and out in 75 minutes. Uh, the movie is, is, is efficient like a lot of the Universal Monster movies were. But what it really is, is just a beautiful piece of gothic horror uh, that I think for a lot of people who might be like, ew, black and white, 1930s, you'll be really surprised at just how vibrant and alive and modern this movie feels. Uh, so I, I really do love this one. Um, I think especially for anybody that likes gothic horror movies, um, I think this is a... a, a fantastic film to check out. I'll ask you sort of a follow-up to future Frankenstein movies that have gone out, that have come out there. I mean, are there any that stand out to you that are, are worthy successors to these universal versions? So, Hammer Studios in the 60s did a... a series of Dracula and Frankenstein movies. I don't remember the titles, but I do remember they were they were quite solid. Uh, a lot of the other ones that I've seen, I don't think are that great. I know some people have some love for Kenneth Braun as Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which was kind of his version of Bram Stoker's Dracula, which I know you and Ashley talked about. I think that movie's actually not very great and uh you know there's there's been others but i i just i think really the james whale frankenstein and and bride of frankenstein are really where you need to go admittedly i am not a gothic horror expert um i'm gonna actually just give a quick shout out to my buddy daniel epler who has the cobwebs podcast if you're interested in gothic horror that guy has forgotten more about gothic horror than i will ever learn so check out some of his episodes because he does make some frankenstein recommendations or just check him out on twitter because he'll he'll steer you in the right direction. But for me, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, and obviously also Young Frankenstein, are I think where it's at. Those are the three for me that I that I go to the most. Awesome, awesome. I will definitely check that one out. I have to. It's one of those ones where it's like, you know, why have I not? <laughs> so, well, for my first pick, I decided to go with a, a, a small connection to the episode we did on the 1960s, and I picked a movie that was, uh, I say this loosely, based on true events, and I will preface this by saying that I have done an episode on this movie about five years ago, so I think the time for me to uh, bring it back and let 
some of the listeners who have just been focusing more on the 20th Century Movie Club know like how how I think effective this movie is. And it's a film that was directed by Stuart, Ro- Stuart Rosenberg. And I, I say that was the connection. He was the director of Cool Hand Luke. And I'm talking about 1979's The Amityville Horror. Now, when I say loosely based on a, a, a true story, the movie tells the story of the Lutz family, a family that moves into a house that is a palatial house on 112 Ocean Avenue in the city of Amityville. It is a house that really, they on paper shouldn't be able to afford, but the house is so cheap because of a brutal crime that took place. Now that's all based on fact. There was a family, the DeFeo family that lived there. The son Butch systematically murdered everyone in the family. The house sat on the market for a few years. The Lutz family moves in and they only stay for 28 days. And when they exit the house, they leave all their worldly possessions behind. Now, this movie for me is really effective because it's it's the type of horror movie that I have the most difficult time with because it's a psychological thriller. And it is terrifying for me beyond belief. Now, it stars James Brolin and Margot Kidder. And it is... I almost get chills just thinking about the film. Now, I would invite listeners to go back and listen to the episode I did on it because I do talk a little bit more about the real-life backstory. But I would encourage you to watch the movie first before you listen to that episode. So, Mike, The Amityville Horror, what are your thoughts? This is one of the few times that you and I are actually probably not really going to see eye to eye on a movie, um, which I hate, man. I hate it. Nope, <laughs> no worries. I do. I do not love this movie at all um, for a couple of reasons. Um, as a film, I think it's fine. For me, it was not actually that scary. It was a little it was a little little slow, but also it kind of. And I don't want to get into the backstory again. I encourage everybody to listen to your episode and stuff like that. But, you know, if you've researched the actual story, it's there's a lot of money being made by a lot of shady people on the Amityville horror. And and so for me, it kind of I don't know, it's always sat wrong with me. But that's just a personal thing. I know it's a movie that a lot of people love. I think it's a great recommendation because it's a movie that a ton of people absolutely love. Uh, and I also think that it kind of springboards us into some interesting conversations because there's a remake to talk about. And I think we also kind of need to talk about the Conjuring movies, given that the Warrens were a big part. They're not really in the movie, but they were a big part of the Amityville horror, the true story of the Amityville horror. But for me, it's not a movie that does a a, a ton for me. And I I feel terrible saying that because I hate it when I don't like a movie that's recommended on this show, but it, it doesn't do much for me. But that shouldn't dissuade people from checking it out because I, I do think they need to see it. For me, the the se- the real selling point of this movie for me is the performance by James Brolin. The manner in which he just sit- sinks more and more into madness with what's going on there. He for me, becomes, even though, and I'm not trying trying to get out of spoiler territory, even though I believe the house and what's happening with the house is the antagonist, to watch him sort of become evil, if you will, it is, I think it's a terrifyingly effective performance. And that, that, that alone for me is the reason I recommend it. Now, do I agree with you that there has been a lot of exploitation surrounding that house? And of course, you know, we always have to be cognizant of the fact that people really did die in that house. Like that was a tragedy, what happened. And, and, and did the Lutz family perhaps exploit that? Yeah, I think I make the case for that in that episode that I do. But when we're talking about just, you know, for the pure cinema experience, 
I think James Brolin's performance is just lights out. I would 100% agree with you on that. I, I think that, that that role, and that's actually just the one thing I'll say about the remake, because I think we can probably agree the remake's not great, but it, the one thing the remake has going for it, for me, is the way Ryan Reynolds also does that. Well, and his abs. But yeah. besides <laughs> that, the way he sort of does that descent, it, it's it's almost like that role is just tailor-made. And, and you're right, Brolin nails it. I mean, he it's a... It's a you can just watch it as the movie goes on. He slowly gets more and more, uh, you know, taken over by the house, if you will. And I do think that is the one thing that really works in the movie is his performance. I think by and large, the acting all around in the movie is quite good. Um, I, I don't have any complaints about the acting, but Brolin definitely stands head and shoulders above above everybody else in the movie. And I can say this. I've never um, I, I saw the remake in the theater and I agree with you. I think Ryan Reynolds, again. He does a really good job in that film. This is an interesting franchise in that I have had zero interest in ever revisiting any other version, sequel, remake, prequel, whatever they they do. You know, I like The Conjuring, but it's not a franchise like the Halloween or the Friday the 13th Elm Street or anything where like, oh, okay, I could sit down and watch any one of those at any given time. Like, It's not a franchise I'm remotely interested in, but I really do think the first one's effective. Yeah, I mean, and, and by and large, it's a absolutely garbage franchise. I mean, like I said, The Conjuring's only tangentially related. I like all of those movies because I really like James Wan. The only one of the Amityville horror that I kind of like, and this is, it's so funny because I'm just about to be like, oh, the, the original was exploitative, but the sequel, Amityville, Amityville to the Possession, for those who don't know, is the prequel about what happened before the Lutz family moves in. And it is a nasty, gross piece of Italian exploitation cinema. I I kind of like it because it does steer so far into the exploitation, but it's definitely not for everybody. Yeah, by and large, this is a series, a franchise that has not been well served. Uh, and, and there's like 12 different movies in the franchise. So, you know, if you want to dive through all of them, go for it. You you do you. But uh, <laughs> I think you're probably pretty good watching the first one, maybe the second one, and maybe the Ryan Reynolds version. I don't think there's any others that are worth watching. Absolutely. So what do you have for your second pick of the episode? So for my second pick, we are jumping forward to the 70s. Uh, and, you know, one of the things I did, I, I immediately thought about recommending was, was the almighty Halloween. Uh, but... On one hand, it's like, is there really? I know that a lot of the younger generation doesn't watch a lot of these movies that we recommend. That's why we recommend them. But with the new movie that came out last year, is there really anybody that hasn't seen Halloween? And I can't recommend John Carpenter movies every week as much as I would like. <laughs> um, so I decided to jump back a couple of years to 1974 to a movie that Carpenter admitted was a, a big influence on him in Halloween. And if you watch the movie, you can see it because a lot of the way it's shot, a lot of the techniques are ones that Carpenter basically took wholesale and repurposed for Halloween. And so that is uh, Bob Clark's 1974 proto slasher, Black Christmas. Uh, Black Christmas takes place uh, around Christmas uh, in a sorority house where a, a weird sort of disoriented man brings breaks into the house, breaks into the attic, and from there proceeds to terrorize all the uh, young women living in the sorority house. And, you know, it's a slasher movie. 
you can imagine where things go from there. Uh, but what makes Black Christmas so effective is is a couple of things. One, uh, Clark really goes very subtle. There's not a ton of overt violence. It's very much like Carpenter's Halloween, where there's not a ton of on-screen violence, and what there is isn't what we would call graphic or bloody. It relies more on mood and ambiance, and really this juxtaposition of all these pretty Christmas lights and carols and beautiful snowfall with this very, very unsettling thing that's happening. The other thing that the movie has going for it that's amazing is sound design. So this is kind of influenced by the old urban legend of the babysitter and the the person calling from inside the house. And uh, in this one, the, the killer does that. And the phone calls in this movie, the way the sound design is done, the killer's voiced by Nick Mancuso, uh, an actor that some people may recognize I have a lot of affinity for because uh, he was in Rapid Fire. Uh, and the way Mancuso and the sound design make it almost sounds like there's a dozen different voices that the killer's using, and it's really unsettling. Uh, have you seen Black Christmas, Dana? I haven't. I'm going to be Owen 2 for this one, but I'm familiar enough with it to understand that this is a movie that's been remade a couple times. But I, I wonder um, if you could speak to – you said this was 1974. You know, often Halloween is credited with, you know, really introducing the slasher genre. This is four years before Halloween, and – I got a couple questions for you on this one. This had to have been an incredibly controversial film when it came out. Just the fact that there's Christmas in the title. It's the early 1970s. We're getting into the the, the nitty gritty of Hollywood. So can you speak to first how controversial this film was? So what's kind of interesting is when it came out, the the one thing that people need to realize about this movie is it's actually, it's it's from your old stomping grounds, Dana. It's Canadian, not American. And so it was it was one of the movies that was made sort of with the help of the Canadian tax breaks that, that they created to help build a Canadian film industry. And I think because of that, it kind of snuck under the radar a little bit. It came out, it had modest success. There was... Not a ton of pushback on it. Certainly later, another completely unrelated movie that came out in the 80s called Silent Night, Deadly Night about a a murdering Santa Claus had a massive amount of controversy. There was a bit of controversy on this one, but not for its theatrical release. It was actually for its television premiere because it was set to premiere two weeks after... Uh, some sorority girls in Florida were murdered by a man who was later discovered to be Ted Bundy. And and people kind of pushed back and didn't want NBC to show this so soon after that. And so they pulled it and showed a different movie. That was kind of the closest actually to controversy that this really got just because it, it kind of flew under the radar and it was a modest hit, but it wasn't like Halloween where it was this massive, you know, huge success. And so, and I think there weren't enough of these types of movies yet. You know, sometimes being ahead of the curve can help you sneak under the radar as far as controversy goes, uh, because there weren't slasher movies coming out every year. We didn't have this deluge that we get in the 80s of, uh, you know, all these slasher movies almost every weekend, there's one in the theaters. So surprisingly, it kind of snuck under the radar for controversy. Could we credit this as one of the first slasher films? 
100%. This is uh, absolutely considered to be a foundational slasher movie. Uh, you know, a lot of times Halloween's kind of credited as the first one, but it really isn't. I, I think Halloween was the culmination of a couple of movies that came before it. I would consider... One we've talked about before on this show, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Uh, I would consider Michael Powell's Peeping Tom, Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and this to kind of be the proto-slasher movies that then were sort of merged together like Voltron to become Halloween, <laughs> which good. is really what you know launched the genre. Um, but if people like slasher movies and, and you like the Halloween type slasher movies, I think you'll really dig this one. There was a remake. You mentioned that. It's fine. It's actually funny that you mentioned the controversy, Dana, because the remake that came out in uh, 2006 actually had far more controversy because they wanted to open it on Christmas Day, <laughs> and there were several groups that protested that. It, so somehow the remake was more controversial than the original. Um, but uh, the remake's fine. It's okay. I, I don't love it. Uh, a lot of people hate it. I, I think it's passable, but it's certainly not as effective as the 1974 one. So... <laughs> For my second pick, I'm going back to the zombie well, if you will. It seems like it's a genre. For By the way, for somebody who doesn't do really well with, you know, the splatter gore type thing, I seem to be stuck on uh, on the Romero zombie kick here for a little bit. Of course, I mean, I recommended Night of the Living Dead. Uh, earlier in an earlier episode, I re recommended Return of the Living Dead, which of course is not Romero, but it has ties to Romero. And you would think the logical next one to recommend would be Dawn of the Dead. But I have to tell you, I have... Um, the movie I'm recommending is 1985's Day of the Dead. And there's a reason why I'm recommending this one. And for those who haven't seen it, Day of the Dead is the, the third in the Dead series that Romero started with Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, and eventually Land of the Dead, and a couple more after that. To me... The reason why I like this one even more than Dawn of the Dead, I know that's blasphemy to say that. There seems to be just this utter sense of hopelessness in this film that I think with Dawn of the Dead, you're still, you're still at the beginning stages of this zombie at worldwide zombie outbreak. And you don't get this sense that, well, maybe you get this sense that, you know, this might be contained and, you know, life could go on. And with Day of the Dead, I think what you get is the finally you get the realization that there's only a handful of people left. And when they're gone, this thing is completely over with. And for those who haven't seen the movie, it takes place primarily in Florida. It's just a group of survivors, scientists and military. They're in these underground bunker. Uh, they're trying to conduct experiments. The scientists are trying to con conduct experiments on the zombies to try to figure out what they can do. The military guys that are there, I mean, they're just basically falling apart. And it is... A little bit more subdued than I'd say than Dawn of the Dead, but when the gore kicks in, it really kicks in. But I just thought the film to be a little bit more authentic as far as the reality of the situation everyone finds them in. Mike, what do you think of Day of the Dead? So it's been a long time since I've seen it. And we, we've talked, you and I have talked a little bit about it. I remember not liking it a ton. But after talking to you, I realized that it's actually a movie that I need to revisit. Because your your take on it that you just said here, that it, it the hopelessness of it. Because when I, when I saw it, what stuck for me was, I don't want to get into spoilers, but there is, and I won't even say who or what he is, but there's a character called Bub in the movie. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it just seemed so kind of 
odd to me. Now, part of that was also, I saw this before I really had seen a lot of George Romero movies. I hadn't seen Martin. I hadn't seen The Crazies. I, I hadn't kind of gotten a vibe that, you know, the sense that Romero was kind of kooky and almost everything he did has a skewed sensibility to it. Uh, so this is for sure a movie that I need to revisit. I, I'm actually going to put it on the list. I've seen it, so it's not technically one that I can say I haven't seen, but I'm still going to watch it for our next catch up episode because uh, I need to revisit it. I think I actually need to sit down and revisit all of the the Romero zombie movies because part of the other problem I've got is, is as I mentioned when you recommended uh, Night of the Living Dead, thanks to Walking Dead, I'm just so done with zombies, man. I'm so done with them. But I think I need to go back to the source and kind of get back in touch with why zombies actually work and why we like them so much because uh, and nobody did that better than Romero so I think this is a great recommendation again I think it's one that's perfect for this show because like you said you actually kind of like it better than Dawn of the Dead and frankly if you're going to watch, a, if people are listening and they're going to watch a zombie movie, they've probably already seen Dawn of the Dead, but they may not have seen this one. So I think it's a great recommendation, man. I love that you suggested it. One of the things that I really like about this movie, which I think differs from, I'm putting Night of the Living Dead aside because I think that movie completely stands on its own legs. I think it completely, it's a masterpiece, especially given, you know, the... The, the, the tiny budget, what they had to work with, I think it's a, an absolute masterpiece. What I think sets Day of the Dead, apart from Dawn of the Dead and apart from Land of the Dead, is there is no silliness in this movie. There's no goofiness in this movie. There's a lot of goofy little tongue-in-cheek things that happen in Dawn of the Dead, and, and they're effective. And Land of the Dead is a complete, it's its own animal. I just think that the characters in Day of the Dead the seriousness of the film. That's why I think it's the most realistic because this little tiny society they have, it's only a handful of people, 20 people, 25 people tops. They are psychologically falling apart. And that's what I think is so effective about the movie is there's no humor in this movie at all. And I think that's the most realistic aspect of it. Did you ever see, Dana, did you ever see the uh, 2008 Steve Miner remake of Day of the Dead? Is that the one um, with Ving Rhames? No, it's the one, it's the one, oh yes, you're right, it does have Ving Rhames. I totally forgot he was in it. I was. I knew Nick Cannon and Mina Savari were in it, uh, but you're right, Ving Rhames is in it, yes. Did you ever see that one? I haven't, no, and I don't know if I want to. Do I want to uh, see it? No. So I love Steve Miner. Um, for those who don't know, Steve Miner directed uh, Friday the 13th Part 2, Lake Placid, Halloween H2O. He's a very solid horror director. This is when we when you and I talk about, especially you, because you 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 very much don't like remakes. This is what you and I are talking about when we don't like remakes. I think this movie is is and I, I, I am loath to use this term when it comes to movies, but this movie is utter garbage. So if listeners are seeking out Day of the Dead, Make sure it is the 1985 one, not the 2008 one. The 2008 one is staggeringly terrible. Okay, yes. Well, I'm certainly going to take your advice on that one. It's not something that I was genuinely ever interested in seeing. So, all right. So, what do you have for your third pick of the episode? So, for my third pick is, uh, it's actually going to be a sequel, but I'm going to recommend the sequel as the first 
as my first recommendation here. So as we were talking about that we were going to do horror movies, you know, we've got quite a bit of representation of, of some of the series. We've got the Romero zombies that we've recommended. You know, you've recommended A Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, Part 3 specifically. But one series that is missing from our recommendations is actually probably the series, the, the horror franchise that I revisit the most uh, in terms of sort of the big four horror franchises. Uh, and that is Friday the 13th. We do not have a Friday the 13th movie on the list. I am going to correct that problem. But I'm going to recommend one that is much, much later in the series. I am actually going to recommend uh, Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives. For those who don't know, uh, Friday the 13th Part 6 is a 1986 entry into the series. At the end of Friday the 13th Part 4, Jason Voorhees, the the killer of the series, uh, is in fact killed. And I'm going to get into a little bit of spoilers here for some of the series, but I think it's important to know why I'm recommending this one. Part five, uh, they have a Jason type killer, but it's not Jason. And part five, for a lot of reasons, was not well received. Um, I know that it is a, a big favorite of our, our mutual acquaintance and friend Patrick Bromley, but he might be the, the torch holding champion for part five. Most people, uh, were not fans of it. So for part six, they decided to bring Jason back and they brought in, uh, writer director Tom McLaughlin to do it. And what McLaughlin did was really create Jason as we know him. If we're not familiar with Friday the 13th, but we think of Jason, this is the Jason that we're thinking of. Jason is brought back to life and for the first time turned into a fully supernatural being. This is where we get the zombie Jason that truly cannot be killed, uh, that's kind of gross and decaying and falling apart. Uh, when you see Jasons at comic conventions or horror conventions, they're modeling him after kind of this Jason. The other thing that Tom McLaughlin does is he brings a real sense of humor to it. There is a lot of sort of wit and witticisms and a bit of postmodern deconstruction more than 10 years before Scream. So this is by far and away my favorite Friday the 13th, but I also think it's a good entry point for people who haven't watched any Friday the 13th. So I think you can pick it up with this one and you're good to go. Jay, or, uh, Dana, have you seen this one? Oh, absolutely. It was my uh, wildcard pick. So ah, this th this film specifically was my wildcard pick. The thing about, and I have to agree with everything you said there, because when you watch not so much part one, uh, but parts two, three, and four, they, they each basically pick up exactly where they left off. I mean, it's, and we're still, you know, you think Jason dies at the end of each one or at the end of two and the three, and he's just, you know, it just keeps going. I really, you know, I actually had four. I was teetering about putting four on the list as well, but I, I, I have to say, I agree with what you said there. This movie, <laughs> it's, it's what Friday the 13th became. Two, three, and four. Jason is not as menacing as he is in part six. And I think that the, the level of gore and the stylistic killing that he does in part six is out of control in a good way. There's a scene, and I'm trying to stay away from spoilers, but there's that great scene in the RV where mm -hmm. he pushes the, he pushes the girl's face right through the wall. And it's just, it's such a clever way to do it. And lest we forget, it has the great Alice Cooper song on there, which is just an amazing song. I really, really love this movie. And I love that there are just 
so many just throwaway characters that appear in the movie for five minutes and you're like, who are these people? And they're immediately just snuffed out by Jason. Like the scene with the the couple that's in the little Volkswagen is like, well, who are they? Where did they come from? And then they're just gone. Like it's, I would dare say I'm not 100% and people will correct me. It probably has the highest body count of any of like the first seven Friday the 13th films. I would have to think so. It's definitely up there. Uh, I haven't done a, a tally. I think five might have more, but um, but it's definitely up there. I mean, there's there's a lot of a lot of dead bodies in this movie, no question. It's the first one that, like you said, and I think seven strays away from it. But it's 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 the fun one. It's a lot of fun. More so, I think, than any of the other ones. I think it's probably the funnest or the most fun of all the Friday the 13th films. Maybe, maybe, um, which is the one where he's in space? Is that Jason X? Jason X, yeah. yeah. That, that one's goofy, but I think this one is a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I agree. I think this one is, so I, for me, I think that the sort of the fun Friday the 13th are this one, Jason X and Freddy versus Jason. Yeah. Uh, but this is, I think, by far and away the best of, of those. Um, for people who are, are want to kind of get a sense of the, the humor that's going on. And this, and I'm, when we say humor, we're not saying it's like, it's not a comedy, but there's just a, a kind of a, a wicked sense of, of fun and, and, and joy that McLaughlin brings to it. The opening credits are basically a parody of James Bond openings. And, and you can't, you just can't beat that. Um, Jason walks across the screen and then slashes at the screen instead of shooting at the screen. It's awesome. And it, it just has a propulsive sense of, I don't want to, we keep saying the word fun, but that's what it is. This is a carnival ride. This is to me, this movie is exactly what Halloween is. The holiday is all about. It's fun. It's gory. It's scary. It's funny. It's just everything is dialed up to 11 and everybody's having a great time. Um, and this movie just encapsulates that it's, it's by far my favorite Friday the 13th movie. Um, it's the one that I revisit almost every single year uh, around Halloween. I, I have a lot of affection for the series on the whole, but this one stands above it for for me, um, above all the others. I'm going to tell you a real quick story. The uh, In 93, when I was still living in Canada and my parents told me that in about six weeks, we were going to be moving to a rural part of Tennessee. And as you can imagine, that was psychologically difficult for me to handle. I, I was getting ready to move to another country and I was going to be leaving all my friends behind. And my friend Ian and I, for uh, six or seven days straight, we went to the video store and we rented each day. We rented the fr uh, Friday the 13th movie and we watched them in chronological order. I like to say that the first Friday the 13th movie I ever saw was part three, which is true. But in 93... For six or seven days straight, we rented one at a time and watched the movie one at a time. And we got through all the way through Jason Takes Manhattan. And I have very fond memories of that. But I remember in particular with part six, that one kind of messed with me a little bit. And I had to walk home and I probably lived about four blocks from where his house because we would watch them at his in his in the basement of his house. And I had to walk back and I remember it was in the dark and I was getting completely just freaked out because all right, all right, I've watched six Friday the 13th movies in just a few days and I can't handle this anymore. But we, we finished the series all the way up to Jason Takes Manhattan. And then when I moved 
to Tennessee, the the weekend I moved down there was when Jason Goes to Hell, the final Friday went out. And so I went and saw that movie by myself just to put a bookend on the series. And so I just, you just invoked a memory of uh, actually a really important thing that I did in my life. Well, and that's, that's what makes to me Friday the 13th as a series so great because we all have we all have Friday the 13th memories right that we all have the the, the sleep overnight binging Jason movies and because they're not as creepy as Nightmare on Elm Street or as well done as a lot of the Halloween movies. For me, there's just an affinity, an affection that I have for this series and and in particular this movie. Uh, I do want to make one quick side recommendation as well. Uh, it's streaming on Shutter. There is a seven-hour documentary called the uh, called Crystal Lake Memories that details the making of every Friday the Thirteenth. Seven hours may seem daunting, but you can break it up by movie. But if you're at all interested in these, it's one of the best making of documentaries that I think has ever been made, regardless of whether you like Friday the 13th. Uh, just the quality and the behind the scenes aspect of it is phenomenal. Uh, it's on Blu-ray, it's streaming on Shutter. So I, I had side recommendation for that one. And I believe that's by the same guys that did the Never Sleep Again uh, documentary, which was four, came in at about four hours because it had a few less movies. Yeah, I can't. Uh, I've watched about three hours of Crystal Lake Memories, and it's not for the lack of not. I, I, I'm going to finish it at some point, but it's literally anything and everything you ever want to know about everything to have to do with the Friday the Thirteenth movies, point by point by point. You're going to get it with that documentary. So that's a great recommendation. It's it's awesome. All right, so I'm going to round out the episode, and I'm going to recommend another movie that I did an episode on and one that I did an episode on uh, last year. And, you know, I'm sitting here, you know, Mike, I was trying to put together a list and I'm, you know, I've got the slasher film. Uh, well, I've got the, the psychological thriller with Andy Bilhor. I've got the zombie film. But I said, well, what's the movie that has terrified me the most? What's the movie that got under my skin? What is the movie that I literally had to take breaks from? And I cannot champion this film enough. To me, it is the most psychologically terrifying film that I've ever seen. I can't, I, <laughs> I'm almost at a loss for words here, but I start to think about it. I'm talking about 1990s The Exorcist Part 3, directed by William Peter Blatty. It uh, stars George C. Scott as Lieutenant Kinderman. It has Brad Dorff as a... Well, I don't want to get into spoilers if you've ever seen the movie. I've done an episode on it. But if we're going to be recommending horror movies and scary movies and we're, we're kicking off this month, I have to include this one on here. Like, I implore people, if you have not seen this movie, at its core, it will get under your skin. And as my good friend Jim Hemphill has said before, it has the single greatest jump scare in cinema history. So, Mike, I know we've talked about this before, so just a, a few more thoughts on The Exorcist 3. Sure. Uh, so, I do want to echo what you said. Uh, if I remember correctly, you did that episode with Ashley. That was Correct. the first episode you did with Ashley, Correct. right? Yep. I, I do implore everybody to listen to that episode after watching the movie. It's a really great deep dive. I have to be honest. We've talked about the movie before, and but it's been a long time since I've seen it. So, I'm kind of glad you recommended it because it's going to give me an excuse to rewatch it. What I remember was, yeah, it scared the hell out of me. <laughs> Um, it, it's and it's it's a, such a unique continuation. You know, I almost actually recommended as one of my picks The Exorcist, but you had done such a thorough uh, job on your Exorcist episode that I, I didn't want to kind of 
repeat all of that. I would just point people to that. Listen to the episode on The Exorcist uh, with Kelly, right? Wasn't that with Yeah, Kelly, Kelly and Jim were both on that episode. Yeah, that, that episode is is just absolutely phenomenal and, and as deep of a dive as you could possibly want on The Exorcist, I think. So I, I decided not to recommend it, but this, you recommending Exorcist 3 gives me an excuse to kind of recommend it um, because The Exorcist is just phenomenal. And I think Exorcist 3 is absolutely a worthy sequel uh, for a movie that had no business being a worthy sequel, right? Like Exorcist 2 was a mess for a variety of reasons. I know it's got its champions, but the movie was a mess. You know, we were in the the late 80s, 90s, in the age of the hack, quick cash-in horror sequel. There is no reason Exorcist 3 should have been as good as it is, but it is. It is creepy, it's unnerving, and uh, and it it I think it is a worthy sequel to the original. I will say this about this, and it's something we touched on, Ashley and I touched on the episode, is it, it uses what I'll call the Seven method. I'm referring to the, the movie Seven, in that for the first three quarters of the film, you don't see any of the viciousness that is talked about. But it is talked about in such graphic detail that you're able to visualize it. And that is far worse than actually seeing it. So, and I know Seven did that as well, but this movie came out five, six years before that. And it's, that's one of the things I think is so effective about it. One other thing is when you're watching the movie, there is going to be imagery that is going to happen. And it's going to happen for a, a half of a second or a full second. And you're going to say to yourself, did I just see that? And I think that is just one of the craziest things. And there is a comic book reference. And I'm going to be super vague about this. But Mike, when you watch the movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. Where you're going to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Did I just see that? And it's just, it's, 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 uh, I'm getting again, tongue tied talking about it. It's not a movie that I will watch by myself again. Yeah. And I mean, what better recommendation can you have than that? Sure. You know, um, I mean, yeah, and, and well, and it, it brings up just such an interesting point about horror. Uh, sorry, I'm going to ramble for just no, a second. No, go right ahead. With me. You know, I watch a lot of horror movies. I, I am definitely dialed into a uh, a social group uh, that watches a lot of horror movies. You know, my, most of my Twitter friends, and and that's part of the reason I kind of recommended the ones I recommended is because. I need to step out of that group. I can't recommend some obscure Italian cannibal movie from, you know, 1978. Horror is so different for everybody. I rarely ever get scared. Um, and certainly gore and blood and guts, those things, I just love them. I, I get giddy at movies that are like that. So for me, a movie like what you're describing, Exorcist 3, that just can kind of get under your skin Kind of like, you know, toothpicks under your fingernails. Mm. That is a rare and, and glorious treat. And, and people really should enjoy it when they find a movie like that because uh, I'm always on the lookout for that. I'm always on the lookout for the movie that just, and for me, for the most part, it is those movies. Uh, side recommendation because it's way too new, but there was a movie that came out a few years ago called The Invitation that I want to recommend to everybody. If you want to watch what 90 minutes of dread without very much blood or jump scares or anything feels like, I recommend that movie because that's what gets to me. That 
sense of dread, that just feeling of, ugh, I, 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 bad things are happening. And the way you describe The Exorcist sounds, ex- or Exorcist 3 sounds exactly like that. So I do need to revisit it, and I for sure will this month. Absolutely. All right, perfect. So what we like to do at the end of each episode is we want to let the listeners know where they can find the movies that we are recommending. So, Mike, I'll start with you with your recommendations. So, Bride of Frankenstein is available for rental or purchase on all major streaming services. I do also recommend, I watched it on, last year Universal put out a giant box set of all the Universal monster movies, including all the sequels, all the Abbott and Costello movies. Uh, It's a phenomenal purchase and the movies look amazing. So, if you can, I recommend picking that up. Otherwise, it's available for rental for you know three bucks and purchase for like 10 on all of your major streaming services black christmas is available for rental or purchase everywhere but it's also streaming on tubi and voodoo with ads or if you have a shutter subscription it's streaming on shutter ad free and friday the 13th part six jason lives is again also available for rental or purchase anywhere that you uh would buy streaming movies okay so for my recommendations the amityville horror is available for rental or purchase across all major streaming platforms it is available to stream on amazon hulu it's also available on roco and at ad support it uh let's see uh where am i the day of the dead is available for rental purchase across all major platforms it is currently streaming on canopy and flicks fling and finally, The Exorcist 3, which is, this is going to be the easiest one for people to find, is available to rent and stream, excuse me, be able to rent and purchase across all major platforms. But it is also available on Amazon, uh, Hoopla, Vudu, Tubi, Shudder, and Pluto. So, uh, no excuse not to check that movie out. 100%. So... And, and if I'm not mistaken, I think uh, Shout Factory put out a, a really nice Blu-ray of it as well. So if people really like it, maybe check out that Blu-ray. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah, I've actually been keeping my eye on the probably purchasing that one rather s- sooner than later. So, Mike, if people want to follow you on social media. I am at Hibachi Justice on Twitter. I'm also at Hibachi Justice on Letterboxd, where you can find me and the ongoing list of movies that we uh, recommend on this show. I update it uh, a few days after uh, every episode drops, and I've recently updated it with the last couple episodes we did. Uh, so we are now up to 100. And, well, with this episode, we will be at 126 movies. Wow. So we are we are plugging along there. So you can find everything we've recommended from past episodes episodes on that list. Absolutely. And if you want to follow the show on social media, you can follow it on Twitter at Dana Buckler Show. You can follow it on Instagram at the Dana Buckler Show. You can follow me on Twitter at Dana Buckler. You can email the show with questions or comments at the Dana Buckler Show at gmail.com. And you can check out the website www.thedanabucklershow.com where you can find our dedicated page that has every episode of the 20th Century Movie Club on there along with every other episode that we have done. So Mike, As always, my friend, thank you, and I look forward to talking to you very soon. Thank you, sir. Talk to you soon. Absolutely. And my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.